0: You're listening to the Body Literacy Podcast, your connection to the art and science of feeling really good, body, mind, and spirit. I'm your host and holistic health coach, Jen Mayo. If you've never experienced truth and freedom inside your body, an amazing adventure is about to begin. Healing happens in community. Body literacy is your tribe. Join me in discovering the keys to fearlessly unlocking your body's innate intelligence and resilience. Turn on to the wisdom of your body as we connect your wellness dots by exploring whole person healing from neuroscience and nutrition to sexual health and sleep join the wellness revolution and start speaking your body's language Before we get started, I wanted to introduce you to the most profound and impactful piece of health technology I've encountered in three decades of navigating my own health challenges. LifeWave is a wearable health technology that uses your own light energy to optimize your health. If you've followed the Body Literacy Podcast for any period of time, you likely already know that I'm a bit of a walking science experiment. I have a passion for exploring how time-honored ancient healing arts can be coupled with modern science and technology to optimize our health, wellness, and vitality, and how we can empower ourselves with the knowledge and optimization of our own onboard wisdom and healing potential rather than viewing the human body as a problem to be solved. LifeWave's phototherapy patches use light to stimulate the body's natural healing systems by applying LifeWave's non-transdermal patches to specific points on the body similar to acupressure where the patch covers the skin infrared light emitted from the body is reflected back into the tissue stimulating specific regions of the brain and tapping into the body's own Flow of energy and the ability to heal itself. LifeWay patches are not intended to treat any specific condition or disease, but rather support the body's own innate healing mechanisms. When we take a holistic approach to health and consider there is really only one state of dis ease in the body in balance, rather than the 32,000 diseases defined by conventional medicine, rebalancing the body and supporting our own built in capacity to heal becomes a journey of ease rather than a frustrating and disempowering struggle to control dis-ease. Energy medicine operates by a different set of rules than material medicine. I talk about experience-based medicine a lot, and LifeWave is simply a therapy you have to take for a test drive to feel the benefits for yourself. To learn more or try them out, just visit genmayo.com LifeWave. On this episode of the Body Literacy Podcast, I'm joined by accomplished comedian, actress, filmmaker, mother, dancer, performance artist, embodied creatrix, and self-described codependent Tony Naj. Tony has gained a loyal social media following that regularly tunes in for her latest satirical take on the big and small issues plaguing our modern world. Tony uses interpretive dance and comedy to explain complex concepts such as fascism, artificial intelligence, and even contradictory facets of topics pertaining to spirituality, growth, and personal development. Tony runs her own dance studio, Sidestream Studio in Vermont, and I highly recommend her virtual Gyration Nation dance class for anyone looking to explore dance as a form of expression and holistic health practice. Tony completed her undergraduate work in philosophy at Sarah Lawrence College and marries her embodied sense of humor with her philosophical and spiritual curiosities to create performance art that both entertains and provokes deep ponderance of compelling issues. In our conversation together, Tony and I explore some heavy topics that are perhaps better received through a comedic lens in order to make them more approachable and easier to digest. We discuss humor and dance as medicine, pornography and erectile dysfunction, yeah pain avoidance, commoditization of the human body, medicalized childbirth, pelvic exams, and systemic medical violence, all with a twist of humor, of course. Neither Tony nor myself are strangers to controversy. In this episode, we explore the barriers to broaching tough topics through comedy and even the role of embodiment practices to express things that are limited by the English language through words alone. You can follow Tony's production company at CaveLightProductions.com, and she's very easy to find. On all of your favorite social media platforms. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me be in your presence. Yes, of course. So I have been watching you. um, I think I originally found you on Instagram through one of my friends. And the first video I saw, I was just like blown away. I was like literally on the floor rolling, laughing. It was so funny. And so I ended up following your channel and I'm a dancer myself. I've done all kinds of dance throughout my life, kind of came to it maybe later in the game, kind of like you have. But I pole dance and I was figured, skater when I was younger. So movement has always been medicine for me, even though I didn't necessarily intellectualize it that way. Um, so when I started witnessing your performances online, they just spoke to me in a way that I think other ways of communicating aren't capable of doing. For those that are in our audience that maybe aren't already familiar with your work, can you kind of describe your method and how you got into using interpretive dance as a form of communication?
1: i mean it it makes me laugh to think of like me out in the world just interpretive dancing to (laughs) the public yeah i think the videos that i've made that you're referencing i basically have been exploring, talking about different subjects that I find either compelling, interesting, provocative, or upsetting at times. Uh And then I use the language of interpretive dance in order to express the meta and micro feelings of which words could not ever encapsulate. Because (laughs) whenever we're speaking with words, we are limited by so much of our programming and our conditioning and our assumptions and Language in and of itself is, I'm sure you've heard about the the spelling behind spelling, you know, the way that we are controlled and programmed through the words that we use. And from a spiritual perspective, I don't think any true wisdom comes from language because mm-hmm. language is the voice of the ego that's been completely manipulated and influenced by society and culture, where Mm -hmm. for me personally, I think like the, and not only me, I'm sure this is a very, like a Buddhist thought, but truism is something that's like much deeper and much more complex than anything we could say with Mm -hmm. words. So I think for me, the concept of marrying together movement and conversation just was funny to me. Like interpretive dance is funny. I think it's funny. So I just was playing around. I've been making videos for a very, very, very long time. And it was just one of the many kinds of videos i made.
0: I see. I see. And I remember I've heard you talk about this concept of woo. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Oh, well, I had experienced a a 10 day silent meditation retreat Uh When I was going through a lot of personal health problems and emotional strife and really just at that point of life where you feel so desperate for some sort of meaning and support and home within the self that I just wasn't able to find or access. And so I was really feeling like a spinning top that had no grounding and I had no vision of my future So, you know, like a pretty dark night of the soul and I decided to go on a 10 day silent meditation retreat and I'm just the type of person who doesn't really research anything. (laughs) I mean, I like to research topics that I'm going to talk about, but I do not research anything. If I meet a person, I never Google search them. If I'm going someplace, I never do any research beforehand. So I wanted to do a 10-day silent retreat and I wanted to do it for my birthday, which is in December over the new year, but they were all booked. And the only one that wasn't booked was at this retreat center. I didn't understand that it was a Buddhist retreat center. I just like, I was like, yeah, 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 that that sounds fine. So I applied to go to this retreat and I remember so clearly the monks were concerned because I didn't really have a meditation practice. I didn't... (laughs) I wasn't a Buddhist, you know, I didn't have any experience. I'm like, I'd like to do this 10 day retreat. And they wrote me back and they said, we're a little trepidatious about having you come because you don't have the experience and we would really hate for you to leave midway through because it's disturbing for you and for the other practitioners. And so we'd like to get on the phone and do an interview. And I did have the wherewithal to know the proper things to say. Not that I felt the words to say, but I knew what I should say. So, you know, when the monk calls me, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I totally understand. This may not be my time. And I fully accept that. And I know there's a greater wisdom of which I cannot control. I just said all the rhetoric that I thought this monk wanted me to hear, obsessively manipulating my way into a Buddhist (laughs) retreat center. So, like, manipulating monks is on my resume. And when I got there, I was so so confused. I was so out of my league. I had no idea what was going on. It was silent. I couldn't ask any questions. And it took me days to realize. I'm like, oh, I'm at a Chinese Buddhist retreat center and these people are speaking Chinese. And I'm like, okay, okay. Like slowly putting together the pieces. I mean, there was also English speaking happening as well, but we were chanting in Chinese. It took me like a minute to get it. So the practice that I learned is rooted in Chinese Buddhism, and and it's called Chan meditation. And it's similar to like Zen Buddhism. But what I was given was, or what every practitioner was given is, you were saying a mantra over and over and over in your head again, while you were doing everything. So during your meditation practice, while you were doing your mindful work, if you were outside going for a walk, if you're going to the bathroom, you are saying this mantra constantly in your head. And the mantra is, what is woo? And from what I understand, woo represents all the mysteries of the universe and the cosmos that cannot be explained through language, through the limitations of language. So it's connecting you to the mystery and the unknowing of all that you actually do know in the soul but your mind does not know. So it's kind of this exploration of learning about how your mind is functioning and the voices in your head. At least that was my personal experience because I'm saying this mantra all the time, then you become hyper focused of what these voices in your head are saying. So I know I'm going on and on. I'm almost oh, yeah. done. I swear. So you have the voice of your head that is just your wandering thoughts. That's like, blah, blah, blah. What should I wear? Does this person like me? You know, all of those wandering thoughts. I'm hungry. When are we going to eat? Then you have the voice of judgment. That's like, that's a really stupid thought. Why do you always think that? You're so <laughs> ignorant. Then you have the voice that's kind of listening to all of that, right? Right. Yeah. So you have like these all, the and you start to become very aware of the fragmentation of your monkey mind, your judgment mind, your listening observing mind. And then there's like kind of this other awareness and then you have the mantra of course the mantra that keeps going And as you are saying the mantra, you become more and more aware of these other voices. So I would say that by day three or four, I completely felt like I was losing my mind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine.
1: It took a lot to sew myself back together. But that (laughs) was my personal experience with Chan Buddhism, which is a practice I have been doing ever since.
0: Okay. Is is that where the term woo-woo comes
1: from? I don't know. I don't. I have no idea. I mean, I think that's a derogatory term, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <I do
0: too. laughs> uh, but yeah, that would probably make sense. So, okay, that's very interesting. I think particularly over the last couple of years, I think it's come more to the forefront that there are things that we can say through the lens of humor that we can't otherwise say in certain cultural contexts. And I know just having watched so much of you and and J.P. Sears, especially on social media in the last couple of years, it's really been Enlightening and fun to see certain conversations unfold in the context of humor. Why do you think it is that there are certain very serious conversations that we can have through that lens of humor that we can't otherwise have in a more serious context?
1: I think that a lot of comics are philosophers, and you cannot truly get paid to be a philosopher anymore unless you go <laughs> through the academic you know route and then you have to get your masters or your phd you become a professor because philosophy isn't really taught in high schools so you kind of have to go through this higher educational realm in order to study philosophy and then have a career as a philosopher right. so i think for a lot of people the archetype of the philosopher is still with us yet there are not the same outlets as there were you know in more ancient times to just pontificate. Mm-hmm. I mean I think in a certain sense a writer can do that and it maybe a journalist or a blogger can have that full philosophical mindset of questioning and kind of asking these meta questions and then inflicting their opinion and having their opinion be interwoven within the conversation. So I think that you know writers and journalists and comics, they're all coming from this yearning of a philosophical questioning of existence. So I just think that maybe the comics who have this philosophical predisposition, they were just ignored as children in certain senses. so you develop <laughs> humor as a means of you know controlling the situation around you or getting attention or making people like you or however humor is developed, I do think it comes from um, a striving for love. but you know I think a lot of people are really funny. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if everyone is obsessed with what they say to the extent that a comic is. So if I say something that's funny or interesting and somebody responds to it, I will write it down, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll be like, oh, this is for me later to explore. Oh, maybe that's also the writer in me. I do think there is the compulsion of comics and writers of to be heard and to express their thoughts. And that is the obsessive quality. But I think lots of people are funny and lots of people have interesting ideas. Just not everybody has the desire to broadcast them.
0: Right, right. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely been fun to to watch you. And like I said, JP has has been fun to uh kind of explore different topics with. So so the reason we initially connected is you had done a skit online about something in the medical world, which I want to get to in a minute, but that's kind of heavy. So I want to explore a little bit first the whole concept of of laughter as medicine. Why do you think or, or how do you think we can use laughter to heal our psychospiritual wounds?
1: Well, you know, if you think about quote unquote reality, right, and you think about reality from what the quantum physicists are talking about and how, you know, we're in multitude of parallel dimensions at all times. And, you know, I just heard this study about how this Israeli doctor, he had 3000 patients and he divided, they all were sick with sepsis or some sort of gross disease, Mm -hmm. and he divided them into two. And then he had one group that was prayed for and the other group did not receive the prayers. And as you might expect, the group that received the prayers got quicker, faster. They had better results. But the thing that's really interesting about the study is that the people that were doing the praying were actually from the future. So they were praying for people in the hospital six, 10, 11 years ago. And he was just using like, so our ability to impact people from the past, people from the future, ourselves in the past, ourselves in the future. I mean, that's just the tip of the that's iceberg.
0: Of that's that's All these
1: different experiments and ways of which we can view reality and time and energy. I mean, I'm sure you're into Joe Dispenza. Like there's mm-hmm. so many people who are talking about this. So I guess reality is absurd, you know? And the way that we are taught quote unquote reality in this more Newtonian scientific way of, linear thinking. It's very masculine and patriarchal, no offense to the dudes or anything, but it doesn't have this, you know, total expansive, wild, unpredictable acceptance of what actually is, which is where like the spiritual new age quantum physics people are playing in that sand. Mm -hmm. So I think laughter fits into the absurdity of an existence that is so complex, that is so uh, magical in a certain way. And laughter reminds us to sit in the magic and absurdity of it, because when everything is taken very seriously and you see things, A leads to B leads to C, and everything's on a, a straight line and time's in a line and everything's like this. And you can predict and you can tr- control everything, which I do think is a cultural zeitgeist around thinking we can control nature, you know, very, I don't know if you know of the um, scientist Francis Bacon, he's kind of the father of scientific theory. And he was always talking about dominating nature. He had all these metaphors about raping nature, you know, controlling nature. So I do think in this masculine patriarchal scientific world where nature is feared and she is a woman, and you mm. want to control, dominate, rape, and exploit her, right? I think that that's a kind of like you know, there's not a lot of joy in that or laughter. But when you start to look at nature and you start to look at life through this other lens of magic and wonder and unexplainable, you know, unpredictability laughter fits right into it because what is laughter, but misdirection, you know, you think you're going one way and something happens the other way and you laugh. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, I think I answered your question. Yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to say I did.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. That was really good. That was really good. Um, and I think there's this whole, concept of energy medicine that that ties into. And I think where we're going to take this conversation next is that there's sort of been this cultural context of materialism and the body and the commoditization of the human body. Whereas we've kind of divorced ourselves from how energy impacts our material being. And I think laughter definitely ties in with, with that in a huge way. So with that, so the reason I originally reached out to you is you had done a skit um, and I don't think very many people in the public know this, but it's perfectly legal in most states. Still at this point, it's it's starting to change because there's been some medical students who have brought light to the situation, but it's perfectly legal if somebody has been and if a woman has been anesthetized for a surgery without consent for medical students and residents to be brought in to practice pelvic exams on. And there have in recent times, some medical students who have brought this into the public awareness. And there are women who have experienced this without having prior knowledge of it having happened, who have for obvious reasons been very upset that their bodies have been violated without permission. And you had a skit on this with regards to a personal experience you had. Would you mind sharing that with us?
1: Yeah. So. I what happened is I've been having these problems with my right hip, you know, and I see lots of different witches and, you know, <laughs> energy workers, I see all sorts of people. And I had seen this Instagram post, it was a story that I actually shared about this fact about this, the pap smears that happen without consent to women under anesthesia. And I was like, Oh, that's really fucked up. So I shared this story. And I was getting a lot of like, you know, people were reacting to it. And so I had a little bit of a conversation. So a bit in my consciousness at that time that this was a practice that happened. But I wasn't relating it back to myself at all. I just was like, oh, that's fucked up. Then I'm at the healer and she's going about my hip and she starts talking about, oh, I think something that was going on with this hip problem has to do with a violation. And the second she said that, you know, I'm kind of in this meditative state as she's working on me. I saw, I remember that Instagram post that I had done. And then it suddenly just came to me how bizarre it had been that when I was 21 years old, I had broken my ankle. And I went to the hospital to get a surgery on the ankle. I, and I still... I'm convinced I didn't really need that surgery. But at the time, I wasn't questioning such things. Right. So they put the plates in my ankle. And I remember so specifically, I woke up from that surgery. And the first thing I said was, where is my underwear? Because I was like very aware that it was not on my body. And it had been on my body. Right. And they just completely ignored me. And I like asked multiple times. It was the first thing I asked. And then eventually, they just kind of gave it back to me in a plastic bag. (laughs) And at the time, I was like, what the fuck? And I had asked people, you know, like, what's with that? And they're like, oh, maybe you peed your pants. And I was like, no, because my underwear wasn't, like, pee ridden. Like, and I didn't have, like, pee all over my legs. And they didn't, like, just wash my underwear and then, like, repackage it for me. I'm like, no, I did not pee my pants. And then some people on the internet were like, oh, it was a catheter. But – they never told me they were giving me a catheter. So even if that was the case, that would be odd. But I actually don't even think it was that because it's not like I felt like I had been like, I've never had it. I think you would feel if you're, you've been penetrated by a catheter. I just think that would be obvious. You know, I was like, no, no, no. And they didn't tell me there was no conversation that you would have that this wasn't like a particularly like long 18 hour surgery or anything. Like it was maybe an hour. So I don't know what the fuck happened. But when I saw that and I was dealing with the hip, I was like, oh, that is possible. That is possible. And no matter what, why were they taking off my underwear? Like, that's so weird. And so then that kind of got me on a deeper conversation. I'll obviously never know what happened to me. Right. But just around violation in general when it comes to the medical industrial complex and, like, how many pap smears have been forced upon me and just even the experience of pap smears at certain times and just this, you know, you can say my mind can justify, like, oh, it's for science or whatever. (laughs) But my body, I think was like, what the fuck is happening? Like, why is this happening to you? Like, don't do that.
0: I think that there's very much a broader, like cultural conversation be had with regards to medical culture in general. And I'll, I'll preface the rest of our conversation. There's a disclaimer that's like by default at the end of, of every episode of the body literacy podcast that obviously asserts that nothing here is medical advice, which is certainly true right now. But I think Especially in the conversation around pap smears, we've been so, and pelvic exams in general, I'm not saying that they're never necessary, but this idea that this is just something we do and it's something we culturally prepare our girls that when you reach a certain age, this is just something you submit yourself to regardless of not having symptoms of anything it's just something that you surrender your bodily autonomy to somebody who's a quote unquote authority figure to examine. And I don't think, and your your description of this in your skit with, with regards to um the devices used in, in this particular procedure was particularly comical. I just don't think we've, allowed ourselves the permission to ask questions about why is this what we consider normal to subject ourselves to? Why do you think there is so little conversation happening around what's considered normal in medical culture and what we think we have to outsource to another person who we've deemed an authority figure versus knowing our own bodies and being able to have the curiosity and the exploration to examine ourselves rather than giving that to somebody else.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things happening. One is that medicine is a business. Mm -hmm. So there is a vested interest in not empowering the quote unquote patient to have the knowledge, awareness, or desire of which to explore one's own body and one's own intuition about their body. Because Mm -hmm. the more dependent the patient is to the institution of medicine, then the more money that's made. Not that I think that each individual doctor or nurse or what right. have you has that perspective. I, in fact, I think most people get into it because they want to help or they care about people or you know they're doing an act of service. So there's all sorts of altruism that comes with the intentions behind the people that are in practice. But I think the institution of the medical industrial complex as a business is rooted in in keeping people dumb, keeping people unaware of their own bodies, keeping people afraid and keeping Mm -hmm. people ignorant. I have an amazing woman who I work with, who's a fifth generation Chinese acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's one of the most knowledgeable women or humans I've ever met. If you go to see her for a treatment and you call and you're like, I'm still not well, she's upset. Mm -hmm. she's not like oh great come on back she's like what the you know she's not a (laughs) swearer but she's like what the fuck you know she wants people to get better her business model isn't about repeat customers you know she wants to Truly, you know, heal people so they get better and they never have to see her again. Mm -hmm. And that is not the medical institution. And then also, I do think that the legal system is deeply entwined with the medical industrial complex because, you know, our legal system is also a business. Mm -hmm. And so, having this relationship where people can sue the authority figure that didn't act properly has then created a total disconnect between quote unquote healer and patient, where there is this contention rather than a partnership rather than a collaboration, there's a contention and a fear that both people have. So the doctor is afraid of getting sued and the person is like afraid of whatever medical thing that they are ignorant about. And so there's so much fear and contention that already is on the table of the relationship from the beginning Mm -hmm. versus when you're going to someone that's like, you know, more of a natural practitioner who's like maybe in your town who you're going to see all the time who's not part of this like major conglomeration, there's a much more intimate relationship that, I mean, I have so many relationships with women that have really, really helped me with my health. And, you know, like sometimes, you know, I'll, there's a different relationship to boundaries because there can be, because they are working for themselves and they're not part of this greater institution. And so they can be attached to me in a more emotional way and I can feel cared for in a more emotional way. And not everything has to be so sterile, So I think that, you know, doctors feel like they have to protect themselves. And so then there's going to be all sorts of unnecessary procedures and there's going to be this lack of trust in the patients. You don't want to get get sued because the patients are, oh, I'm fine. That's why you're always like signing pieces of paper, like saying you're refusing treatment and why doctors are always kind of pushing excess treatment because they're also having to protect themselves. And I think, you know, one of the things that was so obvious to me when giving birth, I I wanted to give birth like in a yurt or like in an ocean with dolphins, you know, that was my <laughs> original vibe, but I had this history of this brain tumor in my pituitary and The midwife broke up with me halfway through my pregnancy. She was like, I think that you're a high-risk pregnancy. I don't really want you on my record. And I was like, what the fuck? So she was like, you have to go back to your original medical team that was dealing with your brain tumor, even though I had left that establishment years ago. So I went back and I hadn't gotten a pap smear in years. And they forced a pap smear on me when I was six or seven months pregnant. And I was like, this sucks. So I ended up going, but they really were like, you're going to die during childbirth. Like you're very high risk. And I was like, this feels really lame. (laughs) Like, (laughs) And I get that childbirth is very dangerous. Like, I don't disagree with that. You know, for many, many years, it was like one of the things that killed women the most is childbirth. So there is truth that childbirth when gone wrong is very dangerous. And that is when the medical institution has saved many, many lives, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to women in childbirth. So there is a side where I'm like, yes, I honor that. But if a birth is going well, there really doesn't have to be any intervention. So it's almost like there is this interesting duality of if right. it goes bad, it could go really fucking bad and you could die. But if it's going fine, you don't need any intervention. Mm-hmm. You just have to go through the experience. So I think that there is a need for both. You know, women's health has been greatly improved, but it's also been greatly detrimented by this. So it's it's neither here nor there. So then I went to the hospital to give birth because I was like, okay, I guess I'm this high-risk thing and I, I can't be with like the bears like I want to. And I remember- I thought it was I got, dolphins. Well, I, then I thought like bears would be cool in the woods, you know, and they could be like hugging me. Go with the dolphins. I would go with I get to the hospital, and the first thing they want to do is check your cervix. And I'm like, ah, you know, I think I'm in labor. Like, I pretty I'm pretty sure what's going on. And then they basically like fist you in order to check your service, which is like, I'm like, no more of this. Like, we do not need to be going to third base. This is incredibly (laughs) uncomfortable. Like, do not do that to me anymore. And I had to really advocate to like not have my cervix checked multiply. And I was right. I did give birth that day. And you know what? The doctor, I happen to have natural, healthy birth, you know, not because I'm better than everyone. Haha, <laughs> just joking. But like, I happened to be lucky enough to have that life experience. I wanted to have a natural birth because that was the psychological journey I was interested in going on. Mm-hmm. But I pulled out my own baby. Like awesome. I was like, you know, right. And the doctor never did anything but just like hung out in the room. So there are all sorts of ways in which birth can happen. And it can be really scary, but it can be really painful, but ultimately, done without intervention. So that's kind of that's Do
0: you happening, think yeah. That back to language is a barrier to proper communication. Do you think that's part of the problem because I think the term healthcare has really gotten confused with the idea of triage care. So kind of back to what you were saying, there is definitely a need in a context for these more invasive measures, but those are in emergency situations. So I think much of the medical culture that we have now was developed for wartime care of soldiers, that we're now applying that to the culture at large and calling it, like I said, quote unquote, healthcare. Whereas what you were talking about earlier with these independent healers and people who are largely operating outside of the insurance system, because they have to, there's actual things that are conducive to creating wellness. And then there is symptom management and disaster management services that are happening in a triage system, which is most of what mainstream medicine is. Although I think they're starting to catch on that that's not working in terms of true health care.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're correct. And I also think there is a problem of volume. So when you're in a hospital, you have this excessive volume and turnover versus somebody who has a private practice where they're kind of managing that turnover in a more reasonable way, both for their own health and for the health of the people that they're working with. So I think the massive volume that these hospitals and these doctors are receiving, I think it would probably be very difficult to not have to shut down in a certain sense, emotionally and psychologically to the amount of volume that you're receiving every day. And I do think that must be a bit deadening, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, another person died, you know, bummer, but I have to go back to work tomorrow. I have to do this. So I think the system itself creates like a really impossible work environment for Mm -hmm. hospital workers and for healthcare practitioners. And I think that they are so often overworked. They have such long hours, or on their feet. You know, there's so many things that make the circumstance for the healthcare providers really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I mean, like I kind of the solution to that, I would think is to is to have hospitals, you know, be more about. Axe in your head, you're in a car accident, you've been stabbed, you've been shot, you know, these kind of like mega trauma centers. Where if people ha- if if more acupuncturists, more massage therapists, more Reiki practitioners, more you know holistic nutritionists, if those all people were part of the system of insurance or mm-hmm. were a fo- uh, somehow there was government relationships to enforce copay system within people's ability to afford alternative right. health, which a lot of people cannot afford right. it, there right. would be so much more preventative measures. So would people be getting cancer at the rate that they're getting? Would people be getting these sort of autoimmune disease diseases that they're getting? I think a lot of people are going to the hospital with chronic illness, chronic problems, like uh, uh, all sorts of issues that actually would be better solved outside of the hospital, Mm -hmm. but they either can't afford it or they are not psychologically aware that there are alternatives. I mean, I think the true solution is hospitals are about emergency circumstances and there needs to be a huge swath of quote unquote healthcare that is affordable and more on the preventative side. And I mean, then we could go like, we could spend 10 hours talking about food, talking about toxins in the the water, talking about the chemicals that we're using in our cleaning products and our soaps and our clothing, you know, people are exposed to so many toxins and They are not, you know, given the tools of which to deal with that. So, you know, there is this kind of vested interest in keeping people sick. And then the sick people are going to the hospitals, even though there probably are better solutions for them before things get as bad as they do.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. If you were having a baby now, would you birth in a hospital?
1: No, I think because I, I knew I got to, I was okay. And with the whole brain tumor thing, I would absolutely not. And because I had a healthy birth, I don't have any reason to think that my body wouldn't be able to go through that again. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you, but I wanted, you know, I think this is the other thing that's really important is our own psychological mind frame. Mm -hmm. I wanted to experience birth in a specific way. I really wanted to not have drug intervention, but I understood why people do it. You know, I was at that point where I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to Fucking die. You know, I'm like, this is the point where people are like, please take this away. Like, I totally understand. So, if you don't want that birth experience, you don't need to have it. But I think there should be more support around the women who are interested in exploring that birth experience and I think there should be a little bit more of a I get from a feminist perspective, you know, giving people this these options is really important. It's important to have these options, but I do think there is a greater conversation that has to be had around why it's crucial and why it's imperative from a spiritual perspective to at least talk about birth in this way. Where you are exploring it from a spiritual opportunity, you know? Right,
0: right. Bzz, bzz, bzz. Sorry for the brief interruption, but I had to tell you about one of my go to super immune boosting favorite natural remedies that is my first line of defense when I start to feel myself coming down with something, which isn't very often anymore since I started listening whenever my body's telling me something. But Beekeepers Naturals is an incredible company dedicated to not only bringing you cleaner natural alternatives to the traditional medicines in your medicine cabinet, but Beekeepers Naturals sources the highest quality humane ingredients for bee-powered immune-boosting natural remedies and superfood products to keep you operating at your best. I keep the Bee Immune throat spray in particular handy anytime I feel a tiny tickle in my throat warning me that I might be coming down with something. Powered by an incredible ingredient called B. propolis, this all-star ingredient contains antioxidants and other immune-boosting compounds in a convenient spray. Head on over to Jen's Favorite Things link at jenmayo.com and use coupon code Jen Mayo for 15% off of your purchase. I do think that part of it is a the notion that birth is this excruciating experience is partially a cultural problem where we've just been mentally prepared to think that versus if we look at some other non-western or indigenous cultures where they have a very different relationship with pregnancy and birth and definitely a different psycho-spiritual relationship with it we don't necessarily see <laughs> the type of agonizing experiences that we're used to seeing on on cable TV shows of what birth is supposedly supposed to be like. So I wonder if we have yeah. a, a cultural shift in there being a much more positive view of that experience in or outside of the hospital system, whether that would change women's experiences more. And I feel like the ones who are going after the natural experiences with dolphins or bears or whatever are reporting back that, they are experiencing the birth process in a much different way. And I think, you know, there's also this idea that we don't have the the rights of passages that cultures past, or again, some non-Western cultures have that I think are very important for making these big life transitions whether it's it's birth or you know entering into adulthood or menopause or whatever we don't necessarily have these cultural context experiences that say this is you know these transitions are wonderful beautiful times to you know turn inward and and look at what life has to to offer in the next stage of life, whatever that might be.
1: Well, I think that in the Western world there is this assumption and conversation that pain is punishment. Yeah, and so there is this avoidance of pain that we have, and the avoidance of pain comes with all the pharmaceuticals that are brought into our life because yes. you are avoiding pain. But pain is not only a part of existence, but it's our greatest teacher. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, with women the pain of childbirth, especially within like a Christian nation, which is what we are, that is your punishment. Mm -hmm. So you are bad. You are a bad girl. And that's why you're in pain when you are giving birth because you've been bad Mm -hmm. and you're gross and you're dirty, bad, painful girl. And so I understand completely why women fear that pain. Mm -hmm. I understand completely why people want to avoid pain. I get from there has been a programming and a conditioning to us that telling us that pain is indicating something very wrong. And there is sometimes pain that is indicating, oh, something is wrong, but birth is not the pain of something being wrong, right? There's nothing wrong with your body. You actually just have to completely relax into the pain. Like birth is ultimately the most relaxed you will ever be. Because if you just relax and you don't fight the pain, the baby comes out. I mean, even in Western culture, there is all this narrative around pushing Mm-hmm, right. Push the baby, push the baby, push the baby You actually on your back, need to, which
0: is very unnatural,
1: <laughs> very unnatural. You need to just allow the baby, right? Just allow it. You just allow it. And then the baby comes out. So, I mean, even the narrative around pushing on the back of the positioning, you could just be with gravity and just allow. But I mean, Personally, the whole my whole labor experience, I'm fighting the pain. My energy's going up, my energy's going up, and I was I was lucky. I had a doula with me in the hospital, and she just kept you know being bring the energy down, bring the energy down. And my partner, he they were just massaging me and just bringing the energy down. So I had that support of like coming down. But I knew I know the door you have to walk through, and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done, you know, without a doubt, and. I think like the thing that's sad, you know, from a a sisterly perspective Mm -hmm. is that, is that like, none of this is a competition, you know, if if, like a woman had a different birth and her birth is still beautiful, if you had a C-section, that's still, that was part of your process. And there's still so much learning and joy that comes from that. Like, I think that the the sadness for me when talking about birth and talking about these things is that I want, you know, sisters to come together and just really support each other's experience, no, no matter what it was. But I think sometimes there be comes this like competition, or people feel like holier than thou because like I had a natural birth and then I breastfed, I breastfed for like seven years because, <laughs> you know, like I'm a better mother <laughs> than you, right? And, and then women feel really fucked up, and I. I think that we're all doing, you know, our best at being the mothers that we are, and that we're learning to be. And I do think the conversation isn't about, you know, like competing with each other, but more just like sharing experiences and having a lot of space for each other, and like what it is that where we are in our life path at that moment. Right. And I think the initiation that you're talking about, I mean, this is definitely said a lot in our new age circles. And it's like my daughter's like twelve, and I'm like. Ah, bitch, I'm throwing you in the woods for two weeks You know, I'm like, you must know pain And she's like, what? I'm like, put your hand in this fire pot with ants And she's like, what the fuck? (laughs) But I've I've been thinking about, like, how to create, you know Like, painful situations for my daughter I I haven't come up with it yet But I do think it would be really interesting For, like, Western young girls to have, like, (laughs) retreats Where they are kind of put in really painful situations (laughs) yeah yeah my daughter's not into it but i am going to insist upon it so if anyone does that
0: hit me up i'm looking to to put some pain into her life right right some kind of like survival retreat my daughter's turning 16 this winter and i told her i wanted to throw her some sort of sweet 16 like something and she's like people don't do that anymore mom (laughs)
1: Oh yeah, that's sweet. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Sweet of you. I know. Uh, I try, but yeah. So there is this kind of overarching idea that medicalized childbirth really is systemically a problem because it it starts off. I mean, even prior from day one, where culturally conditioning people to hand over their bodily autonomy.
1: Mm -hmm. To
0: authority figures. Do you feel like if we were able to shift the context of by default, having this very medicalized entry into the world, would that also shift how we relate to other organizations of authority in the world, whether it be business, education, government, whatever?
1: Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, if you think of the human body as a commodity, you have to go to the military industrial complex. And so where women's bodies are often brought into, you know, their objects of sexuality, their objects to please men, and they are objects of which to birth the next generation, Mm -hmm. the objectification of women. It has its place and obviously is something that we've been talking about, the objectification of men within the military as tools of war and as tools of capitalism with their, you know, their being workers and slaves, not that women haven't been slaves as well. They have been but um, men as slaves, men as workers, men as tools of the military. So uh, the human body has been a commodity and has been objectified by the wealthy from this capitalist system for, I think, you know most of written human history. I, I think as long as we've had hierarchy, economic hierarchy, financial hierarchy, power hierarchy, people are going to be objectified. And I think the tragedy is is when we step into our own objectification, when we prop it up with our actions, and when we think our objectification is our freedom, like that is the ultimate mindfuck that I think so many of us are experiencing. And so it's like when men go to war, because it's a thing of honor, you know, it's right. like that's so so many people, they they feel it's a thing of honor They they have like an objective that is is moral their objective is about defending their families their objective is righteous in so many ways or of course you know you have an economic situation where you're going into the military to pay for life because you want to better yourself these people are so exploited by the state in order for the state to have these economic advantages over other states it's just like rich people playing with the bodies of poor people constantly
0: right right that's definitely a way to look at it what are your thoughts on birth control because I feel like birth control and and the feminist movement because I, I feel like that conversation is really kind of gone off track where I'm birth control certainly medical birth control has its place certainly in the evolution of women's rights in the last century, but I feel like there was a conversation that didn't happen in all of that, where again, kind of outsourcing our bodily autonomy to this giant authoritarian system that says you're too stupid to know how your own body works. Here's a pill, take that instead. Um, How has that played out? Do you think in the evolution of feminism and with regards to women feeling like they have agency over their own bodies.
1: Okay, that's I think there's <laughs> so much there and I think the reality is is that controlling women's bodies and their fertility is you know obviously something that the state has been very interested in for millennia. Mm-hmm. And our relationship to our bodies and our fertility and our motherhood or wanting to avoid motherhood. I think there's two meta things that are happening. Like one is the personal and one is the societal, right? right? And so the state actually really does want a lot of unwanted babies because unwanted babies are much more vulnerable. And they are much more unfortunately likely to end up within the prison system or to end up within the system that is going to be able to make the state money. And they're much more exploitable. So a wanted child a truly wanted child that can be fully cared for is a threat it's a threat to the status quo it's a threat to the state because you know what it takes to have like a you know like a it's a spiritually confident you know questioning child that like wants to explore it's experiencing humanity and has mm-hmm. this like really present parents that have the time and the attention in order to cultivate its mind and its body that is not what the state wants. And so it's like, you keep parents working, you keep mommy really busy, you keep daddy really busy, you create circumstances of which relationships are really complicated. So then relationships and family units are really difficult. And of course, even marriage is a function of the state, like a marriage works for the state because it isolates people, you are isolated in your little house, and then you and mommy and daddy fight. And then the kids are sad, (laughs) mommy and daddy are fighting. But if we had this like same, obsession with community love as we have with marital love, if there were movies about communities falling in love together, if there was TVs about communities coming together and supporting one another like community love is the love that is going to be able to transcend us from this fucking societal hell we're in right marital love is not that <laughs> you know marital love is a different experience if we were part of a genuine community and we were genuinely caring for each other in a deep way and genuinely caring for each other's children like that is such a threat to the powers that be which is why community is like out the window that's why we have all this tv to keep us in our homes to keep us out of community keep us out of working together. So dot, 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 how birth control fits into that is that, you know, if you don't want a baby, and you can't afford a baby, or you actually don't want one, you know, how to avoid that is a whole thing. You know, it's a whole thing. I personally was on birth control pills for many years. I got on them when I was young because my mother suggested it. She was like, oh, you shouldn't be a teen mom. And I was like, I guess not. And I took the pills and it actually, I think really messed up my health and my endocrine system. So big bummer, but Uh, ditto here. Yeah. Like I think it does. There is an impact. There yeah. is an impact. And Huge. I have friends who have, you know, the copper IUDs even, and like they get them out and they're like, oh my God, I feel like a different person. Mm-hmm. So is there an impact to birth control? Of course there is, but is it necessary at times, you know, for people for where they're at? Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. It, it It is at this point. And I mean, I don't have a regular period. I would I don't have that. So, mm-hmm. would I be able to truly track my fertility? No. Mm-hmm. I so I use condoms. Like that's what I use. Mm-hmm. But like I can use I do, I choose to use that and my partner wants to have sex, so he'll he'll fucking stick with it. But some people <laughs> some women, their partners refuse or they don't like them or whatever, you know, so I think it's really complex. My problem with it is that this is portrayed as a woman's fucking issue. Mm-hmm. It's not a woman's issue. It's mm-hmm. a human issue. Mm-hmm. I think if women are going to be taking birth control pills, we have to experiment more with the men. And of course, they say they didn't like it. You know, it's like a woman can only get pregnant once a year. A man can impregnate fucking, if he can fuck twice a day, he could make 700 <laughs> babies, you know? He can make 700 babies a year if he's fucking twice a day every day. Right, Uh, you know, uh, while they're ovulating more. I didn't even do the math right. It's almost 900 babies a year. So why are we regulating women's fertility when men can make 900 babies a year if they were fastidious enough? So, yeah. Hmm.
0: I, I do wonder, I do wonder though, if we analyzed a population of women who had never been on hormonal contraception or any kind of mechanical manipulation of their body, like with an IUD, whether cyclically and hormonally, they would present much differently, say, than someone like yourself or I who did spend a lot of time on those interventions that have significantly interrupted with our natural endocrine functioning, right? Because I I do think the fertility awareness method is phenomenal, you know, for anybody who wants to to look into that, not just from a A birth control standpoint, but just knowing how your own body functions. And I'll say I had a copper IUD taken out once. And I remember going to the doctor and a, the young doctor I was with couldn't get it out. So she had to like, go get an older doctor. And she comes in and she's like, Oh, so you want to start a family? I'm like, no, I don't want to start a family. I just want to know how my own body works. Cause at this point I was 40 years old and I literally had been controlled by something my entire Mm -hmm. reproductive history. And I literally just wanted to know how my own body worked. And she couldn't even mentally grasp that that was a thing, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. I mean, I agree with you in a perfect world. We would all have like deep knowledge of how our cycles worked and we would be able to work within our emotional cycles. And we would know like, oh, this is the day where I want to do this kind of work. And this is the week that I want to do this kind of work. And, you know, in a perfect world, there would be much more of not only attention paid, but compassion, empathy, and structural alignment around the women's cycle because even it's like you think of a girl going to school and like you know that but the thing is we're not all synced up on the same cycle and they're from like this is I think the issue this is why anarchy is always so much more interesting to me is that when everything's in this like massive like global perspective you know it's like everything has to be whitewashed and you have to just move towards homogenizing everybody but right. when you're in truly smaller communities and then everyone can kind of work within what's happening with their bodies and where they're thriving at that moment. Because, you know, in your cycle, it's like you have a week where you're wicked fucking productive. And then you have a week where you really want to just like tidy up around the house. And then you have a week where you need to yell at everybody in your life and tell them like, fuck you and get your boundaries back. And then you have a week when you like bleed and you're like, ugh, and you go right (laughs) back into it. So none of that is honored because we don't live in like a, society that honors the monthly cycles of women. We live in a society that actually honors the daily cycle of men.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Men yeah.
1: have daily cycles and women have monthly cycles.
0: Right. And, and so much of our self-worth is tied to productivity. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. If we exist outside of that, then somehow we're not, um, we're not living up to two expectations. They, I'll just mention real quick, Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein did two phenomenal movies called The Business of Being Born. Oh, and yeah, 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 Business yeah, yeah, of yeah. Birth Control.
1: I watched the first one, The Born One.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, they were amazing. In The Business of Birth Control, they kind of chronicled two, I don't remember what the organization was called, but there was actually this feminist group That would mail women or have Ah! workshops where they would mail speculums and mirrors to women so that they could see their own cervix, which brings up the question like, why is it the most intimate parts of our bodies we've made accessible to the medical system? Um, Mm -hmm. But we don't necessarily have the curiosity to explore that ourselves, which I think was the sort of the purpose of this organization was, you know, just, I mean, it was kind of shocking, like, why aren't women exploring their own bodies that way, or even their partners, because I feel like I'd Mm. much rather have my partner examine that part of myself <laughs> right. than some stranger with my, you know, my heels up and right, but stirrups. Then are
1: you still a sexual being your partner looks at you like Right, that? right. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, if right. you're like, because our, our sexuality is so much a part of our value. I'm sorry to interrupt right. you, but yeah. I was like immediately like, oh, right, but like our partners want to see us as sexual beings and right, therefore- right. Right. You know, I mean, some some of our partners, I'm sure would do it, of course. But it's just interesting. It's like, as women, you are this sexual commodity. Mm -hmm. And so your partner is going to hold you within that light. And then you have to look towards this establishment. Exactly. But yeah, I think, you know, it's like the curiosity about your own body and like the wisdom. Yeah. that we actually do have about our own bodies is is always, always, always going to be undermined as mm-hmm. long as
0: medicine is a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Shifting gears slightly. Do you think porn is part of the transhumanist agenda? <laughs> <sighs>
1: So I have a very specific relationship to porn. I saw my first porn when I was 14 years old and I was very fucking stoned. Uh, And I was kind of like, but it was from the 70s. It was a porn called Flesh and Laces Part 2. And I remember my friend and I were like super concerned. We hadn't seen part one. We were like, oh my God, we're never going to understand the character arc. (laughs) So like we watched this a couple times, but it was like from the seventies and you know, like it had its moments, but it, it wasn't like truly traumatizing. And then when I was 19 years old, I was living in an apartment with two guys and it was my boyfriend and his friend and we would smoke a lot of pot. And this guy, he ended up working at a video store at, and the store had a lot of porns and he would steal the porn so he could resell them. Mm -hmm. And so we would get very high. And every once in a while, he would just put these porns on. I don't know why he was putting the porns on. I think just, I mean, we were 19. And they were like, porns, like two dicks, one ass, you know, I mean, it was too many dicks for one ass. It was so horrendous. Uh And I was always so high. And I was like, holy Fuck! Like it really, <laughs> really messed me up. So I have not seen a porn since then. You know, okay. I right. I'm like very not interested in them. I know that there is, you know, feminist porn that exists out there where there are women directors, and there is probably, a, you know, a more emphasis on her pleasure, and she's not like a a sex slave woman or a sex trade victim. <laughs> I know that exists, but the majority of porn, I think, is dealing with women who are incredibly traumatized, who are being forced into it, who've been stolen, who are sex trafficked. I mean, I just think the industry of porn is so violent towards women, and it makes me want to weep. It makes me want to cry, you know? Mm, Yeah. So- if there was, you know, a porno life that was like really just about women's pleasure or or men's pleasure too, but women's pleasure was as equal in equal fucking partnership. And those women (laughs) were, and I knew for a fact that those women are like, I'm a happy woman, you know, and I really enjoy this and I'm having a great time. And I just love to film myself having sex. And this is my gift to you that is groovy. Okay. I am totally into like the groovy sharing of one's body or one's sexuality. And if that was what was given, hooray. But that, mm-hmm. I, I think that's maybe 5%, 3%. I don't even know. But mm-hmm. the, the rest of it, I just, I, it honestly makes me want to cry. And the, and the child, and, the, and all of it, like, I think it's completely detrimental to society, how violent It is
0: towards women. There's a documentary on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on there or not, but it was called Hot Girls Wanted. And it was basically how very young adult women, excuse me, are recruited into the pornography industry and how quickly they're used up. (laughs) And as a mother of a teenage girl, I literally, I had to turn it off like 10 or 15 minutes into the video. But I think there are a lot of ethical implications there that people don't necessarily Think of when they're just mindfully scrolling through the internet. But two, um, do you feel like the disconnection from direct? Soulful human connection. Oh, is right. Really the what's transhumanism.
1: Being... Right. Yeah. Yes, I mean, because yes. we're
0: removing actual physical contact with a
1: hundred percent. And I know that a lot of young dudes have wicked boner problems right yeah. now. Yeah. You know, I absolutely agree. It's it's like, and then with VR, and I know everyone's just fucking orgasming over VR right now. And I'm like, oh fucking oh, yeah. no. Like, yeah, I am not interested in this. Basically, I think that like the tech replacement of sexuality of connection of nature is so fucking dangerous i am so not into it like oh you can like swim with the dolphins in this vr no go fucking do that you can still do it while they're here you know and i get it that not everybody can afford it but vr i just think that vr is going to be this like potential of us living in an apocalyptic nightmare of a surrounding where we are in like bubbles or pods. And then we just strap on our stupid VR and experience life through that way. And our physical bodies become useless because the atmosphere is so polluted. Like I am just like, I'm not into it. (laughs) So I definitely agree that pornography is part of the normalizing sexuality, sexual connection through a screen rather than human touch. And because it's like my, my husband, my partner, like he does not watch pornography either. And, and he didn't watch it even before me. It's not like I was like, you don't, you watch porn. He didn't watch porn because he was like, first of all, he's, he's a stoner and he would completely over identify with the woman. You know, he was like, he's a very sensitive Scorpio and he'd be like, well, you know, what's going on with her? Is she trying to pay for art school? Like he would get so concerned about her well-being. And then he also was like, boobs are actually a big deal for me. Yeah. Like when I see boobs, I get a boner. Like, and mm-hmm. I like that, you know, like I like, my boob boner. So like, because he hasn't (laughs) exposed himself to pornography for so many years, like he's just boner city, you know, like it takes nothing for that dude to get a boner because he doesn't, he's, I mean, oh my God, I'm just like thinking about him experience, knowing I'm talking about his boners. He's fine. He'll never listen to this, (laughs) but boner city dude, because he doesn't have this, uh, you know, access to porn. He's Mm -hmm. denied himself a porn. So for him, if he just sees boobs, he gets a boner still. And And he's like a dude, he's older, you know, he's not like 19.
0: Right. Right. Um, And I know, I know that I I think the partner at your, at your side stream dance studio does um, like tantric meditation classes, correct? Oh, yes. I have not been to that. I have not been to that yet. I want to try that as well. But I feel like on the sexuality spectrum, because we have been so conditioned to like screen sexuality and a variety of other cultural issues that so many people don't realize the potential that they're missing out in terms of their connection with other human beings, particularly in a sexual context. Do you feel like it's... It's just the technology or, you know, what other factors are playing into this just relational disconnect that is happening, um, you know, in a more intimate space?
1: I think people in general are having major social anxiety mm-hmm. that is only heightened over the years. And I think that social anxiety is coming from like a deeper existential anxiety about, you know the. The news that we're given, climate change, and so, and then also the polarization of different political parties, and I, I do see a major uptick. I think in general around social anxiety, the pandemic obviously yeah. was exploiting that and playing in the waters of making people more anxious around each other. And I also think that when it comes to roles around partnership and whether or not you know you're in a heterosexual relationship or not, I do think there is a mass devaluing happens with the feminine role that anyone plays in a relationship. And that's like feminine, not meaning you have to be woman-bodied, but what we as society have deemed feminine. Mm -hmm. And so there is such a downplaying that happens through when anyone takes on the traditional feminine roles of like caregiving, keeping the house, child giving, you know, all of these things that when you're in a partnership, resentment forms mm-hmm. and so i think there's so much resentment within partnership that just people keep coming up against because we in we're in this capitalist society where the capital provider is always going to be the one in power in control and the one that's demanding a certain amount of respect and so mm-hmm. then if both parties are within this capitalist system then both parties are kind of building 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 career and then they don't have time for connection and then if like unless you have like a true balance around caregiving capitalism providing etc i just think that so many relationships are suffering in this way and then when it comes to you know new love and people forming relationships and having all of these apps, you know, I think the apps make people just really forget that love is magic and that you can't plan it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's especially, I mean, I know a lot of city people and they're just like, well, I'm going to do this, this, that, and then I'm going to get in a relationship and yada, yada, yada. There is this like, there is this assumption of control that people have that they're applying to love mm-hmm. and they're applying to deep connection. And you can't plan that. You can't mm-hmm. manufacture that. You have to be open to that whenever that happens. And then also with the concept of the apps, I mean, I'm sure, you know, many people think that it's just making people so disposable. Yeah. Yeah. And then you don't have to even work for it because you can just go back to the app. I mean, beforehand, pre-apps, you had to kind of work for things a little right. bit more. You had to work for connection. And that work made you a little bit more committed. Yeah. But there's such a lack of commitment because it's so easy to just ghost someone and then just find the next person and then just ghost that one. And then I think people are hyper critical of each other right. much more than they were beforehand because, again, you could just go back to the apps and find another person. So right. I, I mean... It's so easy to watch, you know, your friends that are dating on the apps, like either within two dates, they're like, bleh, boof, or that happens to them, you know, yeah. it's like so- someone's ghosting so quickly or right, just throwing right. that person away really quickly. And I, I just think that like psychologically, we have to kind of remember that relationships are so difficult and they're so messy and they also shouldn't be the only priority in your life. Right. We really need community relationships are much more crucial, I believe, than romantic relationships, even though I'm in the minority of saying that (laughs) a lot of people are. No, I mean, I I
0: think the idea that you're supposed to get everything from one person is extremely unrealistic, um, which is a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly something to be said for having multiple friendships with other people that fill other purposes in your life and not expecting that one person to be everything to you because that never works out well.
1: And if you're <clears throat> in a heterosexual relationship, a lot of times men do not have friends that they are speaking about their emotions with. Right. They may have buddies, buddies that they you know do stuff with or talk about subjects but they don't have buddies that they talk about their emotions with so then the woman becomes the the caregiver of all his emotional complexity and if you think that men aren't emotionally complex you are fucking incorrect mm-hmm. i think men are way more emotional than any fucking bitch i've ever met in my life yeah. men are so emotional and they only usually have one outlet for their emotions which is their female partner if they're exactly. in a heterosexual relationship exactly. so i think that like men really need a lot of emotional support and they need more friendships of which they are opening up emotionally, which just is from a masculinity perspective is, is not part of the culture.
0: Right. And I, we could do a whole nother episode just on on unconscious masculinity and, and where that has evolved in the culture and hopefully where it's heading back to at some point soon, I hope, but we'll, we'll save that for another time. So I, did want to talk a little bit about your dance work. So like we've talked about before, you do some wonderful interpretive dance, part of your comedy and just education on, on um, social media and so forth. But how do you think embodiment practices like dance help people to extract themselves from the corporate industrial medical complex model? And what are the broader implications of that?
1: Well, I think that there is a this emphasis on talk therapy when it comes to one's problems. And I do think that talk therapy has a place. And I do think that it's very beneficial to many people to have an intellectual understanding of what's going on in their minds. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, the body and feeling one's emotions and really digesting one's emotions in the body is not so often practiced. And so even if you have a mental understanding and you can tell yourself the right things to say or the right things to quote unquote think, if your body hasn't truly integrated what your mind is telling you, then there will be a remaining disconnect. And so you may have the intellectual capacity to understand where you want to change, but you just keep banging your head against the same wall, because you haven't embodied the lessons that your mind has learned. And so embodiment practices, you know, they can take on many forms. But I think that for so many, a body is about like, you know, you keep it aesthetic. So you exercise. Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, you do the weight. So you exercise or you do the things. And, or, you know, the body is maybe a tool for an objective. So it's like, well, I'm playing football or I'm playing tennis, but the body also is your language of spiritual practice. Your breath is your language of spiritual practice. And so I do think yoga obviously is playing in those waters, but then a lot of times yoga becomes just practice as an exercise. Even if the yoga teacher is like, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, you can still go and, absorb nothing in that sense, even though I'm sure by doing the yoga practices, you are having, you know, spiritual connection it can go much deeper if everyone was approaching it that way. But of course, you can't force the spiritual fucking questioning on people. They have to come to that on their own. And I think that a lot of times with the body, um, people are very self-conscious about how they move their bodies and there's a right way and there's a wrong way, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Men are often really uncomfortable moving their bodies in a way that doesn't feel masculine to them. So it's like getting a dude to move his hips. I mean, in Latin cultures and moving their hips all the time. But in Western American culture, getting a guy to move his hips is he's not going to do that on his own necessarily, you know? Right. But there's so much emotion stored in the hips. There's so much that we're storing in all of our body parts and they're all really significant. And to explore and to find and to look silly or to create contortions or to work on your alignment, all of these things, there is such an emotional healing, potential healing that comes with that, but you have to abandon like judging yourself. You have to abandon wanting to be quote unquote good. And you have to abandon like a capitalist objective because the objective has to be, you know, really coming from a place that's heart driven and soul driven rather than
0: head. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing now in terms of Western science, being able to validate stuff is just, how much, you know, ancient Eastern cultures especially got right, but didn't necessarily have the science to back it up. But now we're starting to understand that the fascia tissue network in the body really is almost like this emotional nervous system, um, which is where the whole concept of of mind-body medicine is really starting to come to the forefront. Even, I mean, it's even leaching its way into more mainstream Western medicine. I I think they're starting to understand that the methods that they've been using there haven't been particularly effective to date. So hopefully we'll see more of that. And um, so I, I had the opportunity to take your Sunday morning dance class, Gyration Nation, yesterday, and it was phenomenal. So for anybody who's listening and and really wants to uh, lean into trying something new or different that you haven't done before, I highly recommend um, signing up for Tony's class. Do you have any other um, things coming up either inside of sidestream studio or comedy acts or anything that are going on that you want to tell people about?
1: Yeah, I think mainly what I want to share is that I do want to plan like a more structured six week workshop. Okay. with people where you know, you'd know you be coming in order to explore, I think, your creative potential mm-hmm. and really kind of working through the blockages that we have and that we hold on to when it comes to really unleashing your most wild, creative, innovative, unadulterated self. So mm-hmm. that is something that I'm in the process of organizing and planning that I would yeah.
0: like to do with awesome. some people. Yeah. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. Awesome. Um, is there anything that we didn't touch on already that you would really like to speak further about?
1: No, we did a great job. Yeah, no,
0: I'm fully satiated. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think we should do this again sometime, but next time we'll have like a dance off. That would be so funny. Awesome. Do you pole dance? Because that's my thing. I love pole dancing.
1: Oh, you know what? I get very nauseous spinning too many times. <laughs> so I have one of those, like, I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> so I do not, but it's groovy. It's a lot of upper body strength.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, where can people find you on social media, Tony?
1: On TikTok, I'm at Tony. Naj, my last name is spelled N A G Y, so T O N I dot N A G Y. Okay. Instagram, it's at Tony Naj, at T O N I N A G Y, and I'm also on Facebook as well.
0: Okay, awesome. And then um, websites as well? I have a website um,
1: called Cave Light Productions that has a lot of my video work on it, and then I also have a blog that. I wrote my entire parenting journey from age uh, zero to 10 of my daughter. So it's a pretty intense chronicle and that's called uh, tonybaloni.com.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, awesome. I really appreciate your sharing your story with us today. And I do hope to talk to you again at some point in time, but thank you so much for coming on and um, we'll definitely include all those links in the show notes as well.
1: Yay. Thank you so much. Yes, of course.
0: Have a great day. You too. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Any statements and views expressed by myself or my guests are not medical advice. The opinions of guests are their own and the Body Literacy Podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. If you have a medical problem, please consult a qualified and competent medical professional. As always, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Body Literacy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and sign up for updates over at JenMayo.com